Good morning. Well, it's a warm, warm day. It's going to be hot today. And I'm glad we're all here. Can you believe it? We finished the book of Ephesians. Praise the Lord. Uh, we get to go to the book of 1 John, and our theme is going to be called Authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. We're so glad you've joined us this morning. Would you turn with me to the book of 1 John? The book of 1 John. And John, the Apostle John, starts out, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, verse 2, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. If you're following with us, there are some notes. I think there might be two versions. Okay. So my preaching point is different. So if you have the completed preaching point instead of the fill-in, it's a little bit different, so you could cross that out. As you're studying the Word of God and you're aligning your sermon, you're finding out maybe this is not exactly as accurate as I can be. So here, we're starting out in 1 John. And you know what? In this world... There's a flood of opinions, aren't there? It's enough to confuse and confound anyone. Everyone in the press and media, as well as social media, offer their opinions with such gravity and authority. Sadly, the authority is a self-made authority, not based on anything or anyone greater than oneself. With the advent of Google and the creation of a smartphone, Everyone now is a self-proclaimed expert. A high school student with an iPhone challenges a medical doctor in the field for over 20 years. Because of it, because, it, because if it's on the internet, it must be what? It must be true. If it's on the internet, it must be true. The list drones on and on. Oftentimes, folk, folks throw their hands in the air and come to a point where they say, we'll never know what truth is. It seems to have an air of humility. It seems that if you have an assertion that it is truth and that you are dogmatic about it, it means you are prideful. The world preaches tolerance, yet they are only tolerant with those who hold no claim to absolute truth. Tell someone that Christ is the only way of salvation and that there is no other way. And very quickly you will find how intolerant so-called tolerant people are. Many folks come to the scriptures and to Christ with such an attitude. They look at the Bible and say, how can we ever really know? Does it really matter? Isn't religion simply a way of self-help to make yourself better? What difference does it make if you hold to another form of self-help? You see, at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, the real value of holding any belief is that it is true. Is it true? 
Not if it makes you feel good. Not if it gets you through the day. Not if it works for you and it works for you. That's good for you. Not if it just brings happy thoughts. Is what you believe is true. Biblical Christianity has always been a belief system based on its assertion that it is true. That which, that which, which is in fact happened 2,000 years ago actually occurred. That God came in the flesh and lived and his name was Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross, was buried and was resurrected and ascended on high. God states very clearly in no uncertain terms that you can know truth and specifically truth concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that you must indeed know truth. John 8 tells us that, that Christians must know. John 8, 32 says, and you shall know the truth and it will set you free. So God gave this passage so that you would be confident, certain of his truth regarding Christ. God gave this passage so that you would be confident, certain of his truth regarding Christ. We know that the overall theme, if you turn to 1 John, just to give you a background, uh, the Apostle John is the last remaining living apostle. He is the only apostle who is to die of natural causes. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. And he is writing 60 years later, past from when he wrote the book of John, the gospel of John. And he writes with this concern. In 1 John chapter 5, he says these things, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And there is his overall thesis, his overall statement. What's starting to occur is that there's this uh, heresy that's coming into the church. This early form, and it's just important to know because we have to know why John is writing this way, this early form of Gnosticism that is entering into the church. And so with this confusion of this new teaching that's entering in the church, and they're using Christian terms, brothers and sisters, this is how heresy gets in the church. It uses Christian terms. It comes right in. With this, he says, I want you to be able to know for sure that you're saved. And one of the tests that he gives in 1 John, and we're going to see this repeated over and over, and he's going to drive it home, is do they profess sound doctrine? Do they believe the same things that we believe? Do they hold to essential Christian doctrine? In other words, do they believe in Christ? And so here, the text here is so that you would be certain that you can trust in his truth regarding Christ. You would be certain as you grasp and hold and believe biblical truth, specifically truth about Christ. There are three aspects of, of God's truth that are life-changing. I know that I have verses 1 to 4, but we'll see how far we get, okay? Because there, there is so much truth that is in the text that I don't want to rush it. In 1 John chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, uh, this grants the Christian the freedom to be absolutely confident that what the Scriptures say about Christ is true. You can therefore center your life on him this is john's personal witness 
Notice he says here, what was from the beginning? And he starts out and he's talking about when we, when we walked with him for three years. If you remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now what John is going to talk about is this heresy. And he's not going to talk about the tenets of the heresy itself. He's just going to talk about the truth of Christ. And that's a good strategy of how we talk about, we want to lean on the truth of Christ. The heresy is using Christian language, but to understand it, you got to know a little bit about it. Um, this earlier form of Gnosticism was a mystery religion. It had one of the main teachings that it, thought, that it taught was that there was a distinction between physical and spiritual. That the, everything that was physical is evil. And everything that was spiritual was good. See, this contradicts scripture itself already. Okay? This is what the Gnostics thought. Okay? This is how they taught. And they were coming into the church. They said, no, 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 no. Everything that's physical is evil. Everything that's spiritual is good. But we know what God said. He says, and God made this and he thought it was what? Good. So God created the material, okay? Uh, even 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. But this has implications, okay? This has implications. And the implications that it has on Christ is this. This is how they viewed Christ. Since Christ was so good, okay, in their, in their view, he only could have come in the spiritual realm. He could not have come in the physical realm. The reason he couldn't have come in the physical realm is because if he took on a real human body, that would have meant that he took on wickedness and evil. Okay? And so in their eyes, they, they saw... Jesus, to the pre-Gnostics, that Jesus did not have a real physical body. They thought that Christ, he just appeared to have a body. He was a phantom, an emanation. See, this is absolutely heretical. Here is a sign, brothers and sisters, let me help you, okay? Here's a sign of a cult or a false teaching. They typically pit one truth against the other, okay? That's the sign of a cult or a false teaching. In this case, it is the dual nature of Christ. His full deity and full humanity. What the scriptures teach is that he is fully God and fully human. He isn't less a lesser God. He isn't superhuman. He is fully God and fully human. John clearly writes against the folks who deny his humanity. And he is writing this, and it has huge implications. And the reason why it has huge implications is because if Christ did not fully come in the flesh, if Christ did not take on full humanity, then he did not accomplish the law perfectly for us. If Christ did not come in full humanity, then he really did not die. And that's what they believed. They thought that he appeared to die. Okay? 
If Christ did not fully take on humanity, then he didn't die and he wasn't resurrected for us. So what they are getting at is the person of Christ. And brothers and sisters, here is how the attacks work. They will pit his deity against his humanity. If he's fully deity, he can't be fully human. Or if he's fully human, then he can't be full deity. And yet the scriptures teach he is full deity and full humanity. And so he is talking about the humanity portion. Okay? And this is what Paul is addressing. And he starts out and he says, you could trust this. You could bank on this. This is what the apostles teach. This is what we have we were following through. This is what we are delivering unto you. He says, what we have heard. He says, we. These are the disciples who are with him for three to plus three plus years. And then he talks about these three senses by which we experience. Okay, Three senses by which he understood. And this is the three senses by which John is himself saying that this is true. You could bank on this. You could rest your life on this. This is the bedrock of who we are as Christians. What they are teaching is false. I am teaching you what is true. John experienced the reality of God in the flesh, Jesus, with his natural senses. Notice, he says, what you have heard. What you have heard. The word therefore heard is simply to hear, to listen. But what's, what's astonishing about it is he says that this is what you have heard in the perfect tense. And in the perfect tense, what that means is you heard in the past with ongoing present results. And so what Paul says, what was from the beginning, well, we have heard. For three years, John traveled with Jesus. For three years, he heard him preach. For three years, he heard him teach. For three years, he heard him counsel. For three years, he heard him teach about himself. Jesus' words still reverberated in his heart as if it were just yesterday. Though John is writing the letter 60 years ago. He, he, John is writing this letter 60 years after he wrote uh, the Gospel of John. Notice in John 14. Turn with me in John 14. Remember, they were discouraged. The disciples were discouraged. And John is recounting this. It's as vivid to him. And he says in John 14, verses 1 through 6, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. This is Jesus' encouragement to them. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. Jesus said, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And see, as John contemplates and writes this text, he has the very memories himself of Christ's words on him. Back at 1 John, he moves on to the next phrase, and he says, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld. What we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld. And you notice he says again 
this word seen, and he uses the perfect tense again. Because of what I have seen, there are ongoing results. And what is this? The ongoing results of what I heard and what I see are that I am saved and I am changed forever. I cannot be the same John I was before. What I heard and what I saw of Christ, I am changed forever. And you notice he says, what's, what's um, clear he says in, John, in 1 John, notice he says here in 1 John, chapter 1, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, and now, he says, what we have seen with our eyes. And what John is stressing is that I didn't see this. I don't want you to understand this as a metaphor. I don't want you to understand this as you kind of spiritually see me. I don't want you to understand this as a kind of a paraphrase or some kind of poetic language. John says, no, I saw him with my eyes. Stressing the very reality, stressing the very material Christ as he had a human body. God was in the flesh, and I saw him. He states, with our eyes. And he also says, with our eyes, what we beheld. And now he's telling us, this is how I saw, and this is how I beheld. The word therefore beheld is a little bit different from the word therefore saw. It means to observe, this is one lexicon says, it means to observe something with continuity and attention often with the implication that what is observed is something unusual. The word, therefore, to behold comes from uh, the word theomai, and you can kind of hear it, theomai, where we get the word theater. Okay? You go to a theater, and you observe, and you watch. And what John is saying is, I watched him. I was with him. He is real. And so as he is relaying this information, you got to understand what was John thinking? I think he was thinking this. Turn back with me to John 14. Notice this. This is just by way of introduction of this text, right? John chapter 14. This is major John chapter 14, back in the text, keep your thumb there. In John chapter 14, after he comforts them, in verse 7, he says, if you have known me, you would have known my father also. Now notice he says this, from now on on you know him and have seen him. Now here, here is Philip, okay? He wants to know the father. He wants to know who God is. Okay. Notice he says here, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. See here, at this point, Philip didn't understand who Christ was. He didn't understand that he is God in the flesh. Okay. Philip, it's amazing. You, you got to stop and think. Okay. John is writing that just as I look across the room, and I look at you, and you look at me, they were staring at God. And Philip couldn't quite grasp that. 
They couldn't quite believe that. And so John, so Jesus says to him, with a, uh, with a tender rebuke, he says, have I been so long with you? Jesus does that all the time. Sometimes I feel like he's talking to me all the time. Angelo, have I been so long with you? Right. He says, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? What do you mean? Philip's been with Jesus for three years. He goes, you've been with me, but you don't really know, know me. Right? You've seen what I've done. You've seen all the miracles that I've done. You've, seen, you've heard how I've preached. You still have not come to that realization. And what's the realization? Notice he says here very clearly, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is emphasizing to him as, the, as I stand before you, fully human, when you see the way I respond, when you see the way I love, when you see the way I forgive and the way I probe to give the gospel and the compassion that I share, and when you see me, you have seen the Father. This is astonishing. Because what he is essentially saying is this. If you want to know who God is and you want to know who, uh, what he's like and what he doesn't like and what he hates, then you study who Christ is and what he likes and what he hates and what he loves and how he how he acts and how he behaves because Jesus claims if you have seen me you have seen the father and John goes back in first John and he says that Jesus God in the flesh I saw him this is not fanciful tales this is not something that was created. If you have to think about this, think about this. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples scattered. Correct? They were fearful. When they saw Christ resurrected with their own eyes, they were bold. Right? They saw him. Amen? I think that's astonishing. Magnificent. Go to um, John 1. And you will, you will know that as we go through 1 John, we're going to be ping-ponging back to the Gospel of John. Same author. And you're going to notice very similar striking writing because it's the same author. John writes and he talks about in him there is light and there is no darkness at all. He talks in very uh, dichotomous language. Okay. In him there is no, he is absolutely righteous and there is no sin in him at all. Right. And this is how John writes. We know these famous words. Chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word 
was God. Here's an amazing uh, and just a brief exposition. He says, in the beginning was the word. If you pick any beginning in any time, was the word past tense. In other words, in beginnings of beginnings, okay? As you go back, you notice he didn't say in the beginning. He says, he didn't say in a beginning. As you go back in the beginnings of beginnings, he says, was the word, past tense, he already existed. And then he says, and the word was with God. Simply, that is, that he had intimate knowledge with God. He was with him, but that he is distinct from God the Father. Thirdly, he says here, and the word was God. The word was God, that he had full deity. And then we go to verse 14, just in case we didn't catch it, okay? Just in case we didn't understand it. He says here in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice he says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. That is, Jesus himself took on a body. And it says here, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. And now Paul, excuse me, John is saying the same words. We saw him. We saw him as glorious. We saw him in his full brightness, we saw his glory, right? And I am now relaying this to you so that you would believe. Go back to 1 John. So he uses first the sense of hearing. I remember what he said. It was like yesterday. The sense of seeing. I remember what I saw. It was just like yesterday. And then lastly, just so that you would not confuse this with some spiritual language, he says in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, what well, we have looked at, and then he says, and touched with our hands. Touched with our hands, or our hands handled, right? Again, <laughs> Again, it's to emphasize the physical nature of Christ. To feel, to touch, to handle. If you remember John himself, this is an amazing, amazing thought. John placed his hand on God. He says in John chapter 13 that they were reclining on Jesus' breast, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, John used to eat with Jesus and kind of just hang out, just kind of been close to him. Isn't that amazing? And he says, concerning the word of life, and he uses the same phraseology he does in John chapter 1. He is the word incarnate. Now, is this mincing over words? Is this much ado about nothing? John lays it out pretty clear. If you remove the full humanity of Christ, you remove foundations of the Christian faith itself. That Christ lived a perfect life, fulfilling all the requirements of the law that man should fulfill. It had to be done by a, one of our, it would say, the text would say, 
our kinsmen. It had to be done by one of our brethren. Right. If he did not fully come in the flesh, God did not fully come in the flesh, then Christ did not die. Okay? There had to be a death. If he didn't come fully in the flesh, then Christ did not die to satisfy all the failed requirements of the law that man should have fulfilled. If Christ did not come fully in the flesh, then Christ did not resurrect to defeat death and all the effects of the curse of the law. And so John lays it to rest. He says he came physically. Now, and then he says, and then he says, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So now he's saying, it's not just that I have, pro I have seen him, I have experienced him, I have touched him myself. Now he's saying, we proclaim this freely to you. And the reason why it matters now is because in that, in that heresy, in Gnosticism, the way they used to view truth is this. That not only is the spiritual only good and the physical evil, but now another tenet of this Gnosticism is that only special people get to know truth. Only special people get to know what it means. Only if you reach this certain level, then you will get to know what it means to really be spiritual. I was having a conversation with uh, Shailena in... Uh, uh, our church membership class this morning and we're talking about another issue but it still applies where folks say i have this spiritual knowledge i know more than you and uh, and you are a second-rate christian because you don't know it i have this special gift and this special knowledge and you don't have it and yet that's not what we see in scripture I, and i think this is wonderful about the text is that john proclaims it freely for all of us to know that's why he said what these things i have written to you so that what you will know you have eternal life not guess not have a good hope for right but to know with certainty hallelujah amen hallelujah that we could have things that we could bank on Boy, I hate making decisions on tentative things, don't you? I don't know if this is going to happen. If this happens, then I have to do this. If this happens, then I have to do this. Isn't it amazing that our spiritual life, our salvation, is based on the unchanging fact of who Christ is and that he died and was buried and resurrected for me? Amen? And because of that truth that is outlined in Scripture, I can live my life knowing that it's built on rock-solid foundation, not on somebody's tweet or Facebook status of who they think Jesus is, but rather on the bedrock knowledge of the apostles' testimony and of the Word of God. Hallelujah. You don't have to guess. I think that's one of the most terrifying things. I shared it with you before where I took a brother... I took a, a guy to a coffee shop and he was shocked. He was going to a church for many years. And, uh, and, he, and I said, well, how long have you been saved? And he goes, I'm not so sure I'm saved. I said, how could you not? He goes, well, I believe that Jesus is a Christ. And I said, really? And he said, 
but I don't know if you could be sure you have salvation. And I took him to this. I took him to First John. And he was shocked because he didn't know you could know. Oh, brothers and sisters, you could know. That is the assurance of faith. He actually came. He actually died for me. The life was manifested and we bear witness and we proclaim. And this is why we open our mouths and we declare exactly who Jesus is, his person, his work. We're always aiming at Christ. Over and against the mystery religion of pre-Gnostic influence. This is, this is another sign of a cult. Okay? You don't know this. This is what we keep from us. I think one of the best compliments we've been getting in the in the church we've had visitors come and i think one of the best compliments that we've been getting uh because uh what they've been telling us is you just preach it straight i said hallelujah that's what we want to be known for amen people are so sick of being fed a line from politicians (laughs) from other religious leaders, right? From self-made authorities. People are always sick of that. But by God's grace, let us stay true to this and let us just preach it straight. Amen? And proclaim Him. We believe that they shall, if they come to know the truth, the truth will what? Set them free. We can't hide Christ. We can't obscure Him. We can't kind of hide other doctrines behind, behind, behind me and hope that they don't ever see those doctrines and then whip them out later. Kind of bait and switch like what we were talking about in home group. The church that says uh, you will get this and you will get that and you will get these burgers and all these things and they don't preach Christ. John says no, we come fully disclose full disclosure amen he says here the word of life that is christ and he has testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us again he states the very deity of god himself he was with the father and if you remember even in john 17 Jesus says this about himself. See, John is remembering how Jesus prayed. In John chapter 17, go to John 17. John 17. Manny, I'm getting a little bit warm. (laughs) Can we hit that AC again? John 17. Okay. Notice he says there, in G- we call this Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we're going to see the eternality of Christ himself. He says in John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about his crucifixion. Glorify your son. It's amazing. Jesus is the apex of his glory, all of the attributes of God is going to be now on full display at the cross. God's compassion for sinners, God's hatred for sin, Christ's sacrifice for sinners, the atonement, it will be on full display at the cross. And that's why Jesus is saying, glorify your son. It's amazing. Who can say that if if he wasn't God himself? This is utter blasphemy. Glorify me if he is just human. He is God in the flesh. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all who you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, and he defines eternal life. It's not just life in duration. This is life in quality. That you may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given to me. Notice verse 5. This is astonishing. Okay. Jesus now says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. is that amazing? So in 1 John, the apostle is saying he was with the Father. Here, this is what he means. Okay. What does it mean? Does it mean that simply... He was just, he, he just knew about God? No. He had glory before the foundation of the world. He had glory with the Father. He said, glory, glorify together with yourself with the glory which what I had you, with you before the world was. What is he saying? I had the same glory as you did. That is astonishing. This is the Christ you worship. Amen? Amen? So I could bow to him. I could lean on him. Turn back to 1 John. Proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We got to see him. We got to know him what we have seen verse three uh, secondly god's truth restores relationship god's truth restores relationship so first god's truth proves reliable sorry i don't i don't think i gave you the first point there was an alarm right first god's truth proves reliable you can trust it you could bank on it you could give your whole life to this Amen? It caused fearful men to be bold and preach right in front of the people who killed Christ just a week before. It's amazing, right? You could bet your life on this. Amen? Secondly, God's truth restores relationship. Primarily what he's talking about is not relationship with one other, but relationship with God. He says here, notice, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What he's saying, what is fellowship? Fellowship is a partnership. It's what we share in common. Okay? The word there is koinonia. It means common. It means a participation is another way to say it. Okay? In other words, he says, as you come to Christ and you believe in him, you have now this reconciled relationship based in Christ. Because of his blood, now you were once an enemy, now you are his friend. And not only his friend, you can walk with Jesus. It's the same thing as abiding in John chapter 15. And what's astonishing is, is the, soul, is the person who makes our fellowship possible 
He makes us, you and I, brothers and sisters. We are actually family in Christ. Not like family, we are family. He makes the fellowship possible. He doesn't separate himself. The Apostle John doesn't separate himself from other Christians. He doesn't say, I'm a closer Christian to God than you are. He says, we have this fellowship together. Amen. And now we walk in this vital relationship with God himself. Notice he says here, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at, look at John 10. John 10. Look at John 10. We know, this, we know this parable very well, but notice what he says here. Verse 25, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. What's he saying? That I am God. Okay. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How do you know someone's a Christian? They follow Christ. Does that mean? It's pretty simple, right? They follow Christ. Are they following Christ? Then they're probably a Christian. He says, they follow me. Notice he says here, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says here, no one is going to snatch them out of my hand. So he's saying, I am gripping the sheep with my hand. Then he says here, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if you picture this, we are his sheep. We've been saved. He's given us eternal life. Jesus says, I am holding your hand. He says, the Father is holding your hand. We are being held by, it's almost as if like a little kid by mommy and daddy, right? You ever notice that as, uh, you, if you take a toddler out to the beach, um, it's kind of funny sometimes as they're even in ankle-deep water, just a little water will push them over, right? And even if you have one of their hands, and the water does push them over, and then they kind of roll, but they're still holding, and you still got them, right? But they just kind of just do this roll, right? And yet, when you have the two parents holding on both sides, that child is just swinging in the air and everything like that. Brothers and sisters, how much more the God of the universe, the two persons of the Trinity here, we know the Son and the Father are holding your hand. Amen? That's fellowship. That's sweetness. That's participation. That's newness of life. We fellowship with one another because we fellowship with him. We are brothers and sisters because he's our father. Does that make sense? Amen. Amen. Oh, amen. Amen. We have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, in 1 John, I love this. I love this. 
And he says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Lastly, not only does God's truth restore relationship, but God's truth also brings rejoicing. God's truth brings rejoicing. When someone receives the truth, there is rejoicing. And rejoicing and the joy that is in Scripture is not the kind of joy that is you could read from the dictionary. The dictionary would say it's an emotion of happiness. The joy here is a settled conviction that does exude in happiness, but it is settled. It is rock solid. Why? Because I know my destiny is, is set firm because of who Christ is. I know and I have joy in the fact that I'm forgiven. And I know that I have joy that the Father and the Son hold my hand. And I walk in this life knowing God himself. John says, if you follow these things and if you believe on these things, my joy will be made complete. Why does he say that? Quite simply, it's because of this. The most joyous thing that has ever happened to my life, as much as I love my wife, as much as I love my kids as they were born, the most joyous thing by far is coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ and being forgiven of my sin. And I'm happy and I know I'm forgiven. And I didn't care if my friends left me. Amen. That is the greatest joy. And now the greatest joy for someone else to have is the same thing. Amen. So what I would want for everyone is to be walking with Christ. And that's the heart. Because your greatest need, you think your greatest need may be more money. You think your greatest need may be more position. You think your greatest need may be maybe more better time management. You think your greatest need may be all of those things. Brothers and sisters, your greatest need is Christ. Well, that's good for a non-Christian. It's good for you too. This is what John is saying. Are you walking with him? Are you resting in his promises? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you fellowshipping with the Savior daily so that your joy would be made complete? Are you fighting for joy? Maybe the reason why you're not having joy is because God's trying to get your attention and you're trying to find joy in lesser things. It could be anything. It could even be good things. And you're trying to find joy in it. And you know what? You have not surrendered. You have not surrendered a portion of your life that God is getting a hold of. Oh, brothers and sisters, this Christian life, oh, I, let me tell you, it is not drudgery at all. It is not, oh, I guess I'm going to make it to heaven. And I, if I just kind of just, you know, kind of struggle on and limp along, I'll make it to heaven. You know, what, brothers and sisters, this life is filled with joy. I would not trade it for the world. Not one second. When we come to see someone uh, get saved and someone's growing in the Lord, when I see someone make a decision to follow Christ more or to be more committed or cut things out of their life and grow in Christ, man, my heart soars. Why? Because it's the best thing for them and it brings Christ glory. Do you want that, brothers and sisters? Do you want, do you want, to, do you want that in your family? Does your family see that? That your greatest joy is Christ. And that them knowing Christ is your greatest joy. Does your family see that? Or do they see other competing things in your life? 
Because no matter what you say out of your mouth, they could see it in your heart. What makes it beat? Is it Christ? This was for the Apostle, Apostle John in his age on the island of Patmos by himself. Make my joy complete by following Christ. Father, we are so grateful that truth transforms. Truth in Christ transforms. That we can be sure because it's reliable, that it restores relationship. We can walk with you in fellowship and in richness and that it brings rejoicing. We're so glad. Thank you for providing for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, may we walk in newness of life. Help us to sing. Help us to praise you. Bless the fellowship time even after as, as we go our different ways. In Jesus' name, amen.